Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another Fisher Investments Market Insights podcast, where we discuss our firm's latest thinking on global capital markets and current events. My name is Naj Srinivas, Communications Group Vice President here at the firm. And today I've got a very special episode for you. Today we've actually got an excerpt from our most recent Capital Markets Update. The Capital Markets Update is actually a video that features Fisher Investments five-person investment policy committee having a roundtable discussion about some common client questions that we've heard all around the world. I hope you enjoy this little excerpt and I'll rejoin you after it. I'm Eric Renaud, a Group Vice President in Private Client Services. I'm joined today by the Investment Policy Committee. Ken Fisher. Great to be with you. Bill Glasser. Great to be with you, Eric. Jeff Silk. Hello, Eric. Aaron Anderson. Hi, Eric. And Michael Hansen. Hello, Eric. The bull market turns nine this year. How much longer can the bull market keep running? There's no age factor that tells you when a bull market either ends or begins. Age is not really a feature of it. It's under the same category in our view of things like valuation or how many new market highs, all-time highs does the market hit. None of those things actually tell you whether a bull market ends or not. Bull markets don't die of old age. They die of something happening. We we like to say the wall or the wallop, which is do you have a euphoria-based outcome where expectations just get significantly higher than reality and reality can't deliver that expectation any longer? Or do you have some kind of fundamental event that we call a wallop, which would take capital markets offline, most likely take global GDP off to the tune of several trillion dollars because we're thinking in a global sense these days? That's what would have to happen. And today we just don't see the conditions for those things at all. Would you hear a lot if you are skeptical on the market or if you're scared of the market, you hear people saying, the market keeps hitting new highs. How much, how much further can the market rise? We have all these new highs. And, and the answer to that is you shouldn't be afraid of that because what a bull market is, is it continually hits new highs, which is why it keeps living on. So just because the market is long in terms of duration and just because we keep hitting new highs is not a reason to think that stocks can't move further very strongly. So the way most people think about things is naturally. And naturally doesn't really apply to capital markets. Naturally tends to be sort of linear and relate to things that you know from nature. So senescence, the concept of old age leading to demise and death, is a concept that's very normal to us in a natural world. Plants suffer senescence, humans suffer senescence. It's just natural. Markets, as we cited earlier, actually accelerate in the last phase and keep going until, as Michael points out, they hit that wall or that wallop. But there's all these things that we talk about near endlessly where people look for natural phenomena to be answers to markets, and they almost never are. The PE is too high. Well, as long-term clients know, we've diced and sliced PEs every which way but loose. And on a one, three, and five-year basis, PE tells you nothing about the future direction of the market. People don't want to believe that, but we have a very long history of PEs, a very long history of parallel securities prices. We can run correlation coefficients and prove zero correlation, pure randomness. But people look for natural phenomena. Heights as a frame that is scary almost always when it's presented to us that way, and so high valuations look scary. 
bull markets run their own course regardless of valuations. In the end, eventually, bull markets end. There is a final new high. To Jeffrey's point about new highs, new highs, new highs, when you actually get to the euphoria parts, people stop worrying about new highs. It's the last new high you need to start worrying about. Not that we've had a lot. Every new bull market has a lot. It's this process that goes on, which is nonlinear and it's non-natural, and therefore it's very hard for most humans to think in those terms because they keep looking for natural ways that would be the end. The end is not natural. It's been about a year since President Trump was inaugurated into the White House. How has he stacked up relative to our expectations? Well, I think what's been clear is you've actually seen a lot of tweeting, of course, but a lot less actual action than I think people perceive today. Uh, you know, if you look at actual legislation that's been put in place over the course of the last year, there's been one big bill, of course, the, the tax reform bill that uh, went through. Other than that, there really hasn't been a lot of big political action. If you just look at the number of bills that have been signed, uh, it's been low relative to other presidents. They're bigger and more complex bills. They're very swampy, which just tells you a little bit about the complexity and swampiness of Washington today. That, that swamp certainly has not been drained. But overall, even though you're hearing a lot about politics in the news, it makes a lot of headlines, you do see a lot of tweeting and so forth. In terms of actual action, you're not seeing all that much. And I think that that's giving the market a lot of comfort. We always highlight the fact that gridlock is the optimal environment for equities because it lowers political risk. People often get frustrated there isn't things happening in Washington. Why aren't we getting more passed? Why aren't we getting more done? The market actually doesn't like all of that. What the market likes is less political action, less political risk, and that's exactly what you're seeing today. And that's true not just here in the U.S., that's really true globally. As we've moved past a number of big elections in Europe last year, the outcomes of that, I think, gave people more confidence that the status quo would be maintained. And so I think what you're seeing, for equities at least, is a pretty good backdrop and one that's just not featuring a lot of activity. And as we look forward, I think there's more to that to come in 2018. We're going to have more political headlines this year, particularly in the U.S. as you get into midterm elections. But all of that probably adds to the gridlock as people are... Uh, who are going to be running for re-election just aren't as inclined to want to sign on to big controversial bills. They're more inclined to focusing on getting themselves re-elected. And we're right in the midst of that starting to happen. It pains me to say it a little bit, but we're in for another election season here before too long. And so as folks are just focusing on their re-election versus focusing on getting big controversial legislation done, political risk should be pretty low this year, and that should be a good backdrop for stocks. What we said about... Um the reality of President Trump before he got elected is that if he got elected, because so little of Congress on the Republican side had been supportive of him in the campaign, that you would get this what we call new form of gridlock where he would have inter-party fighting and even though they would have the majority in both chambers, they wouldn't be able to pass much. That's been abundantly clear that that's been the case. Regularly, Republicans have tried to float things through Congress to have this largely same group of Republicans batten it down and vote with the Democrats to not pass things. That's a form of gridlock. In this election, coming up in the midterms that Aaron referenced, we're going to have an outcome that is either A or B. A is that the Republicans keep control of one or both houses of Congress by a hair's whisker, or B, the Democrats get control of one or both houses of Congress by a hair's whisker. 
If you look at the structure of the elections, it really isn't possible to get outside that bandwidth. And what that says very simply, that most people just don't get this way, is we're either going to get a continuation of this new form of gridlock that we've had all throughout 2017 and into 2018, or we're going to revert to conventional gridlock. And either one of those means we don't have much potential shift for major I think one thing investors have to look forward to as we move through the midterm elections this year, then we get in the back half of President's, uh, President Trump's term, and that really tends to be the sweet spot for stocks, politically speaking, where if you compare the first two years of a president's term relative to the second two years of a president's term, the second two years, the last two years, you have a much greater consistency of positive returns relative to the first two years. And the reason for that, what we believe, is because when you go through those midterm elections, almost always, with very few exceptions, the president's party tends to lose power. And when you get into that second half of a president's term, it's much more difficult to get various forms of, of legislation to be passed. You reduce that political uncertainty, you reduce that political risk, and all else equal, that bodes well for stock prices. But you know, if, if, if someone is a fan or opponent of President Trump, either way, and they're very firm in their belief, they tend to extrapolate that into their views about the stock market, and that's always a bad idea. The, 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 the fact is, there are many who would say President Trump is great and he has made the stock market do well. Look, it's gone up. Uh, the fact is, that makes them more confident of the future and that helps them into the greater fool realm. There's the others who say, oh my gosh, President Trump's terrible and the market's gone up anyway, the market's crazy. That actually also helps them look for other reasons that lets them also play into that later greater fool theory phenomena. Uh, you can play this in a lot of ways and in a lot of functions. How will the market react to the passage of the tax reform recently? And the second part of the question is, does the passage of that bill challenge our thesis of gridlock looking forward? Well, first off, as we said, you know, we've got a long history of tax cuts, tax hikes of all different kinds, corporate tax hikes and cuts, income tax hikes and cuts, capital okay. gains, which of course is particularly relevant for investments. And what you can see very clearly is there's just no there there. I mean, getting back to that notion that markets pre-price all of this stuff and it's debated and discussed for so long that all of those expectations very efficiently get baked into stock prices, that if you look at market returns before and after you get in any of those types of hikes or cuts, there's no consistency to how the market does, which just tells you uh, these ultimately become non-issues. This bull market is in no way reliant on the tax bill that's been passed, and if we hadn't gotten it, then the bull market would have continued for other reasons as well. So we don't think it really has much market impact whatsoever. Um, and so I think the notion that now Republicans have kind of got their one big win leading into midterms, there's not the urgency to do something controversial, all that supports the notion that we're in for a lot of gridlock going forward, which as we've said, is a pretty good environment for stocks. And it's not a bull market that's reliant on what's going on with taxes. Bull market's growing for a lot of very good reasons, but it's not just because of tax cuts. You know, one way to keep your sanity in all this is to go back to the basic concepts we've been describing for so many things tied to bear markets and corrections, how does markets pre-price. You take something like the tax cuts. 
The first thing you can say is there are not many things on the planet Earth that have been more widely discussed and therefore already digested into stock prices. The surprise power isn't there. I mean, even you might be able to argue because certain things got jammed in at the last second, maybe there's some surprises there. The truth is the whole Earth is looking at this thing, particularly the financial community. Second piece is scaling, and we talked about this with bear markets and other things that affect markets as well, which is that the, the idea that even for a country as large as the United States, that a single piece of legislation, in particular this tax bill, is of an order of magnitude large enough to really change the entire trajectory of the global capital market system, let alone the economic system, when you scale it right, you realize it's really not, and that these things are relatively small compared to what it really takes to cause, let's say, a recession or a bear market and so forth. And when you scale those things or you think about market pricing, you can really keep your sanity pretty well from all the things you get bombarded with in the media each day. Now, l l let me just keep playing with that for a minute, because there's just so much nonsense that's said about stuff like this. Uh, one of the pieces of nonsense that you've heard quite a lot about is, uh, and in fact, um, President Trump and Republicans have promoted this, and again, we're not pro-Trump or anti-Trump, the tax bill with the lowering of the corporate rate will motivate huge amounts of money that have been captively imprisoned overseas to flow back into America. You've all heard that. Now, just think about that for a second. Let's Presume it's true and then presume it's not true because it's either A or B, right? If it's true, then the money flows from overseas back into America. It might help America, but it would hurt non-America. And we have a global stock market. So how do you get the global stock market to go up in a zero-sum game? You follow the simplicity of this? Real simple. If it's just transferring the money from overseas back into America, that might help America to hurt the rest of the world in the global stock market, but where America is about half the way to the total world, how can the market go up a lot because of that? Secondarily, I just want to get to the insulting part. Insulting is actually an interesting point. A statement like that is blatantly insulting to the CEO and the CFO of major global corporations. I mean, it's just a statement that is beyond over-the-top insulting to them because it assumes that with the rules that existed before, they weren't smart enough to separate income statement issues from balance sheet issues and move money around the world wherever they wanted it, which at most cost a couple of tiny transactions. The fact is, if you got operations all over the world, you're, you name the company. You can move money all around the world without that tax effect. You want to get money back in America? You know how to do it. It's not that tough. Let me say that a different way. Who is smarter, on average, the CEO and CFO of Google or the average member of Congress? This is not a tough one. I don't care which party's in power. It's not a tough one. The fact is, those guys know how to do what they have to do to move the money. If you just think of kind of the biggest global corporations, they can borrow all over the world, borrow it here, lend it there, put it into that division, ship it over to that subsidiary, make an equity investment and lend over there. You can move the money around without any real impact, a little tiny impact, a couple transaction costs. And to think you can't is blatantly insulting to those people. I don't, people just don't seem to get that. It, I'll go back to my simple point before. Who's smarter, the average ma major global CEO, CFO, or the average member of Congress? Take your pick. And you know, here again, it's important to think globally. I mean, 
A lot of people have said for a while that maybe the U.S. is behind the rest of the world in terms of revising the tax code and bringing down marginal corporate tax rates, that type of thing. And if that's actually true, then you would have expected these other countries in Europe and Japan and elsewhere that have been cutting their corporate tax rates well before we did, that their economies would have gotten an outside bo outsized boost from that and their equity markets would have done tremendously well. But if you think about the last decade or so, it's been the U.S. economy up until here recently that really stood out as being a better performer and U.S. equity markets that really did. So if those foreign economies that were cutting rates before we did, suddenly got some outsized boost from doing that. You'd expect that to have been reflected in their economic activity and how their equity markets performed, but the opposite was true. And so in that same regard, I wouldn't expect that U.S. tax cuts now give the U.S. or U.S. equities some great advantage over uh, foreign economies and foreign markets because, as we point out here today, it, it's a global world. Companies, multinational companies, can move money around, take advantage of tax rates all over the world or interest rates. Uh, they really can port that money around very efficiently. And just like those foreign economies didn't get some extra benefit from cutting tax earlier, I don't think that the U.S. necessarily gets some benefit from cutting taxes now. We've got midterm elections coming up soon here in the U.S. We've talked a little bit about potential outcomes, slight majority for either party, why do we think that will be the most likely outcome? There is a lot there. This conversation could go on for a long, long time. Fundamentally, the structure of the Senate seats this year favors the Republicans a lot. Normally in a midterm, the president's party loses some relative power to the opposition party. Those two play against each other. If you actually look at the seats are, that are up, it's hard to find very many at all that are Republican seats that have much potential to go Democratic because they're basically in Republican states. That's the basic story. When you look at House seats, they tend to go the same macro direction that the Senate seats go, which means Democrats have a big year they pick up a few seats. They could take control of the Senate. If the Republicans can do better than normal, as happened in the first George W. Bush midterm, the Republicans might pick up a seat. Most of the vulnerable seats are Democrats up for election now who won in states that were more Democratic when they won, and they're now very, very Republican states like Joe Manchin in West Virginia, John Tester in Montana, uh, Donnelly in Indiana, Heidi Heitkamp. These are, now mind you, on the other hand, there's other conflicting features that are going on. The, and it's hard to balance these correctly, except for to say that they largely offset each other. The Republican Party is raising money a heck of a lot better than the Democratic Party is. The Democratic candidates are raising money better than the Republican candidates are. When you get down to the end, if the candidates spend their money well, that gives an advantage to the Democrats. If the parties spend their money well, it gives an advantage to the Republicans. Do I have any confidence any of them spend the money well? No, not particularly. It's too early to know that. We talked a bit about yield curves earlier today and how they're narrowing in the U.S. but perhaps widening overseas. Can we talk about our expectations for global monetary policy and interest rates in 2018? Yes, and we tack that from a few different ways. The first one is, just as you say, yield curves, particularly in Europe, are a little bit steeper than they are in the U.S. today, which we think favors non-U.S. and in particular European banks. We think that's bullish. But in terms and of monetary the question, growth is faster there also. Indeed, monetary growth is faster there, and monetary growth is 
fine around most of the world, but it's not particularly high, which I think gets into the second part of this equation, which many people think about the inflation question when they talk about interest rates, and particularly when you talk about the yield curve. You know, if you go back a year ago, um, as Donald Trump becomes President Trump, you had a lot of folks saying, well, this is the time. We're going to start getting high inflation. You're going to get a strong dollar. You're going to get higher inflation. Well, as a matter of fact, none of those things happened. And now you fast forward one year and you have many of the same people singing the same song. And in our view, it's just not the time for higher long-term interest rates. It is, in fact, the case in the U.S. that perhaps they will raise short-term interest rates some, and perhaps they will flatten the yield curve a bit. But there's no reason to forecast that today. We're just going to wait and see what they do, because I think the part that gets forgotten about in all of this is, by definition, if you start to tighten monetary policy, whether it be by raising short-term interest rates and tightening up the yield curve, or perhaps even starting to sunset your quantitative easing program, which a lot of folks have forgotten that actually does, although in a minor way, start to suck liquidity out of the system. These things are all in re relationship, and by definition, doing those things is actually going to probably decrease inflation expectations, which probably keeps long-term interest rates a little bit lower than people think. And the way, to, the way that we think about that is a long-term interest rate, particularly for a treasury bond or United States or a sovereign yield of some kind, is a risk-free rate plus some inflation expectation component in most cases. If inflation expectations or inflation itself is not going to be as high as people expect, that argues for long-term interest rates being a little bit lower than people think. That's pretty much where our forecast is. Money supply growth, as Ken said, is growing, but not so quickly that you would, it would cause for alarm in terms of high inflation. With some minor tightening starting to go on in places like the United States, we think inflation can be lower than people expect, and therefore long-term interest rates probably stay lower than people expect. That's all we've got for this edition. Thanks for tuning in. For more, please visit marketminder.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. Past performance is no guarantee of future returns. The content of this podcast represents the opinions and viewpoints of Fisher Investments and should not be regarded as personal investment advice. No assurances are made we will continue to hold these views, which may change at any time based on new information, analysis, or reconsideration. Copyright Fisher Investments 2017.